And that brings us to today. You have your word? You have your Bible? Oh, so can I just say this? I want you to bring a Bible with you to church. I really do. I want you to bring a Bible with you to church. One you can highlight, mark, bring a notebook. Um, because my heart is we, we need to be good disciples, which means we need, to, we need to go to school every weekend and learn what God wants us to learn. Does that make sense? Not just be inspired, that's wonderful, but, but learn. So I hope you'll bring your Bible and your notebook at home. You can go grab your Bible and your notebook and turn to Genesis chapter 3. And today we're continuing in the series of messages that we called You Asked For It. You Asked For It. And we called it this because these are questions. All these messages are based on questions that you asked and I've worked my best to try to narrow this down and create the topics and create um, the messages. And I want to say you ask really good questions. I'm so proud of you. And ironically, I never would have, I never would have picked so far. I've never would have picked any of these messages had I been picking because I would have, I just wouldn't have known. And so we've talked about the reality of hell. We've talked about eternity and what happens in eternity. Um, and this week I'll go ahead and tell you what we're going to talk about. And some of you, this may, you may be like, Oh my goodness. And some of you may be, like, I don't even know what that is. And it doesn't matter where you land. If you're like, I know what it is. I don't know what it is. The message today will be uh, applicable for everyone, um, so you just stick with me because it, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I got a lot of questions about questions. Can we question God? W what is it like to have doubts? Is it okay to have doubts? Do you ever doubt, Pastor? Do you ever doubt everything we believe is really true or right? And some of those questions had to do with something that's going on in our culture right now called deconstruction or deconstructing. Um, and I want to talk to all that together in this message. So I just gave it a title of deconstruct, deconstructing divine or demonic. I thought that would be fun. It kind of went over like I thought it would just then. So, um, so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to tell you, if you kind of watch the clock, uh, I'm going to spend about half of my time in what we would call an introduction, and then I have some points at the end. So just to warn you, because you're like, oh my God, we'll be here all day. We'll be on time, but I, I want to spend some time explaining things to make sure we're all on the same page. Does that make sense? So before I do, we're going to pray together, because God knows we're going to need it to get through this message. Amen. Um, and so let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the word of God that answers the questions of life. Lord, that you answer the questions that we need answered and that we can come to you and ask questions. And God, um, your word speaks to the issues of life. And God, really, there's not really anything new. It just has new labels and new terminologies. But God, your word stands forever. So God, if we want our life to stand forever, then we base it on your word. So God, speak to us today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So doubts and questions. Is it, is it okay to have doubts? Is it okay to have questions? Well, first of all, if you've met a believer and, and they've said to you, I've never doubted anything, that's how you know they're lying. Okay. Like that, you met someone, I've never doubted for one day. Okay, you're a liar, okay? Because we're human. And the reality is a lot of the people we see in the Bible had their own doubts. And a lot of people we admire from the Bible. Abraham doubted that God was actually going to give him Isaac as he promised. In fact, Abraham tells God, hey, 
never mind. Why don't you just let Ishmael be the promise? In other words, God, why, you know, Sarah and I, we, we made a pact and it was a bad plan. And I slept with Hagar and, and that was our plan to have a baby that way. And it wasn't really your plan, but I don't know if you can do your plan. Will you just bless my plan? And by the way, discipleship point, probably everybody's been guilty of coming up with your own plan and asking God to bless it at some point in your life, right? Maybe it wasn't about a baby and, and you know, a, a female servant. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a business decision, whatever it is, but you had a plan and you wanted God to bless it because you doubted that God maybe would do something, whatever. The point is, Abraham, the father of faith, had doubts. Sarah who we might call the mother of faith, laughed at, at God, right? Like God's like, no, you're going to have a child. And she laughs and God's like, hey, why are you laughing? You know, he's like asking Abraham, why, why, is, why is Sarah laughing? David, you know, we kind of have Psalm 1 that says the, the righteous prosper. In Psalm 73, David's saying, you know, my foot almost slipped because I looked and all the wicked people are prospering and I'm just trying to figure this out. I mean, Job had a lot of questions. And if you would have been Job, you would have had a lot of questions too, right? Um, John the Baptist doubted Jesus was Jesus. Um, I mean, you think about this. He was the cousin of Jesus. He was raised with Jesus. You know, being raised with Jesus, he probably saw some curious things. Like one day, John the Baptist's dog was playing in the street. A chariot hit it. John's like, oh no, the dog died. And Jesus is like, look over there just a minute. And all of a sudden the dog, look, he's alive again. John, this is amazing. He had just fallen asleep, but I came that I might wake him up. Right? I'm sure, you know, they, they were like, you know, probably John, Jesus were playing. John got all muddy and, you know, Elizabeth was like, John, I told you not to play in the mud. Look, Jesus doesn't play in the mud. And John's like, he walks on the water. That's why he doesn't get muddy. You know, I mean, I'm sure there was some curious things is my point. But John's in prison and John actually sends his followers to Jesus and said, are you the one? Are you actually the Messiah? Or, or should I be looking for someone else? I mean, we all know Thomas and we know Thomas because of his Instagram handle, Doubting Thomas, Right? Right, his real name, well, his name was actually Didymus, you know, T. Diddy, but, um, <laughs> these are the jokes, people. But anyways, the point is, he was, he was, we know him as a doubter. What I love about God, though, and you got to love this about God, is that while I would tell you there are some questions you may ask of God that he will never answer you on. And I'm just going to be honest enough to tell you that. And, and really, usually it's the question we all want to ask that we're not going to get the answer to because it's a why question. Because everyone has a why question. Why this? Why that? You know, and typically God doesn't answer the why question. Why did this have to happen to me? Why did I have to go through this? Why didn't God stop something? I mean, I, as a pastor, I can tell you those questions are just prevalent with everyone, and I certainly understand them. I have a list of my own why questions. I do. The truth of the matter is God hasn't answered a lot of my why questions. So I've learned to ask a different question, a better question, like what do you want to do now? What do you want to do through this? What do you want to do in my life? Like I've, I've decided to go with those questions because I found those questions have a higher success rate of getting answers. 
So I, I don't think, it, you know, what I love about God is that I think you can ask him questions. I just don't think we should question him. Does that make sense? Big difference there. It is one thing to ask God a question like, God, would you speak to me about this? Or I don't understand this. Or why, it, why did this, you know, I think, I think God is okay with that. But I think when we start putting God in the scales and we start questioning him, like, what are you doing? And maybe you're not God. And, and I, I think that gets really dangerous. Does that make sense? And, and I like, I mean, when you think about, think about God, Jesus' response to Thomas, Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe it's Jesus unless I can touch his wounds. And Jesus actually shows up and says, Thomas, touch my wounds. I mean, to me, I'm like, God is so gracious with us when you think about that. Or you think about John. John's like, hey, you know, are you the one or we should we look for another? And Jesus is like, send him a, tell John the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, you know. And he kind of goes through, he actually goes through six of the seven signs of the Messiah. The only sign he leaves out is he'll liberate the captive. And essentially, John is sending, Jesus is sending John a message that said, I am absolutely him. Please don't stumble because I'm not going to work the way you want me to work. Because he says this, he said, blessed is the one who doesn't lose faith or heart or doubt because of me. What Jesus actually, if you, if you study the text, what he's actually telling John is, I am the Messiah. I'm not going to do it your way. I hope you can trust that. And so I found a lot of times that's how God answers questions. I am God. Marty, I'm not going to do it your way. I hope you'll just trust me. I found that's, a, that's a, a lot of times how God answers. And so I, I think it's okay if we need to ask God questions. If you want, I, I'm very inquisitive, especially with God and my relationship with God. That's why I love studying the Bible because the Bible gives a lot of answers to these and you can see a lot of things in the Bible. What I try never to do, though, I've learned this, what I try never to do is, is to start questioning God. In fact, you remember Job? Job had a lot of questions for God, and, and apparently somewhere it kind of got, you know, as we say out in, out in Texas, you know, there was a burr under God's saddle somewhere. Because about chapter 38, God tells Job, you ready yourself like a man, I'm going to come ask you some questions. I don't ever want to be in that staff meeting. I don't want to be there. Because God comes down and he says, where were you when I formed the world out of nothing, essentially? Like, I mean, wh wh why all of a sudden do you get to decide whether I did a good job or not? I mean, this is kind of where God lands in the book of Job, you know. So I'm just saying, I think humbly, in fact, one of the questions I got, I'm going to put it in my words because I, I don't have, one of the questions I got was it, it showed this very reverent heart towards God because it was saying like, I so want to be reverent to God. I want to be honoring to God and I have questions, but I don't want to ask a question that would be irreverent. What are the, and my thought is with God, the heart is everything. And if you have that heart, I don't think God would be upset if you ask, his, ask him questions. I'm not saying he won't answer. I'm just saying I don't think he'll be upset asking if you have the heart of honor and love and God, you know, I'm, I, just, I just have to answer. I don't want to upset you. I'm not trying to call you into question. I just have a question, right? Remember, it's a relationship when you're talking about God. And, and because we have a relationship with God, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking questions. I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking answers from God. 
about issues in life. And guess what we do every weekend when we get together? We talk about God's answers to issues in life. Does this make sense? So, so I want to go from there to some questions about what is now called deconstruction or deconstructing. And so if now some, I understand some, some of you in the room may be like, I don't understand what that term means in our current culture. So I'm going to explain it, but here's why you need to know. And by the way, when we get to the points, they'll help everybody. But here's why you need to know what this is, because many young people are dealing with this right now. You probably know some. There are, there are young people in our church and probably older people in our church dealing with this right now. Um, and, and you probably have a child or a grandchild or, you know, a nephew or a niece who is, this is what they're being bombarded with. And what culture is telling everyone is it's now completely normal. And we should all go through a season of deconstructing our faith. And we're making it sound, our culture is making it sound like wisdom and making it sound like prudence. And even it's now in the church. And there are a lot of well-known people of faith who are, as we would say, deconstructing their faith. And I want to speak to it because I'm hearing it a lot. Uh, and I want to speak to it because I have a lot of concerns. And I want to speak to it because as a pastor, I pastor three-month-olds and I pastor 80-year-olds. And I want to make sure that I'm doing my best to help everybody. Does that make sense? And so I want to talk about this. So we're going to learn a little bit together. So don't phase out because you probably need to know. Listen, I think, I think the best thing we can do as the church is be aware of what cult, the voices of culture. Because, and I'm going to say this, ooh, I want to say this so lovingly and humbly. Because many times the voices of culture, I'm trying to think how to say it lovingly and humbly. Many times what culture is saying is anti-God. So if culture is really loud on something, we need to know it and we need to know typically why that's not true. And we need to be able to present that humbly and lovingly, not grab our Instagram and blow somebody out of the water. Does that make sense? That's why I haven't answered this question really much at all, like on social media or anything like that, because people would just get all upset. But I've got, you know, 40 minutes or so here that I can answer the question about deconstruction. So what is it? Well, deconstruction is not a new word. It's actually from the, uh, well, the word's been around a long time. But in, in, um, in the 1960s, a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida, Derrida, sorry, Derrida, Jacques Derrida, started using this term deconstruction uh, as a literary term, really philosophical literary term. And really what he was promoting or saying is that when you're looking at a literary work, there's no way to absolutely know what the writer was talking about. So since there is no absolute, you can kind of pre- you can kind of impose your thoughts, ideas, and feelings on the text. And whatever reality you come to, whatever truth you come to, whatever absolute you come to, that's what it is. Because there's really no way to know the absolute. So, so essentially, it was a postmodern, postmodern philosophy of relativism 
which started really beginning to say, so we had, the, you know, we had modernity or modernism, then you get to postmodernism. So modernism was based in science and said there was absolutes. Postmodernism became philosophical and more like there are no absolutes. By the way, uh, this is where our culture is today. Let me give you a phrase that is a postmodern phrase. I'm going to live my truth. There is no absolute truth. You understand the fallacy of a statement that claims for truth, claims a, a, an absolute truth while saying there are no absolute truths? Because to say there is no truth is a truth claim. So you can't say absolutely there are no absolute truths because that is to, to say, make a statement saying there is something while the statement says there's not something. You understand? And yet we have people that say this and they feel like they're intellectually enlightened. Oh, there's no absolute truth. The truth is there's no absolute truth. The truth is very humbly again, humbly. The truth is that statement doesn't even make sense because you can't have a truth statement that declares there's no truth. Are, are you with me? And, and so, so postmodernism more hangs out in this relativism. And, and if, those, if you don't like all the ism words, it's just a culture where we're saying everything's philosophical. It's as I experience it, that is what becomes my reality. As I, let me say that again, because if you'll pay attention to TikTok, by the way, I feel like I need to say this again. TikTok is not where you go to get theology. Okay. I have, I've seen things as a pastor on the tickety talk. And I am like, what? I mean, this girl the other day, she was going off because she is so enlightened. She's like, guys, guys, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. The word homosexual wasn't even in the original Bible. And I'm like, because the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. There were no English words in the original text. I'm like... And all of a sudden, you thought you were enlightened. And, and, and so we got on TikTok to tell everybody how smart we are because the word homosexual wasn't put in the Bible till the 1940s. Up until that time in the English language, it was more leftist sexual immorality. And then everybody says, well, that original word meant pedophilia. No, it didn't actually. You're listening to someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm sorry. Amen. It just gets, it gets, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just trying to say when Paul uses what, what we now see as the words homosexual, Paul uses it most frequently. He actually ties it back to the Hebrew root that we see in Leviticus. And the word actually literally means a man who lays with a man. It, it's not talking about pedophilia. It's talking about a man 
who, who lays with a man like a man would lay with a woman, but it's a man who lays with a man. It's what the word actually means. Don't get mad at me. I'm not trying to make a political statement or, or to hurt your feelings. I'm just, this is going all around, right? Like now all of a sudden the Euphrates River is going to drop and all the demons are going to come out of the Euphrates River. That's not what's going to happen. That's TikTok theology. But I, but I love you. And because I love, you know, this is what I feel like today as a pastor, a shepherd. And when a shepherd sees a wolf, he doesn't say, hey, 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 that thing might could eat you. No, when a shepherd sees a wolf, he says, get back. And then he gets the staff and he hits the wolf with it. Are you with me? So... <laughs> Anyway, so my point is, my point is that there's a lot of silly stuff on social media and, and we, listen, listen, young people, listen, just because someone has a lot of social media followers doesn't actually mean they know what they're talking about. It just may mean they have as many people who don't know that just like what they're saying Remember, by the way, when we're talking about the masses and the majority, it was actually the majority that crucified Jesus. So sometimes following the majority is not really where we want to be in life. Does that make sense? Okay. I feel like I feel better now. I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to upset anybody. I'm just trying, I'm just trying to help you. So so anyways, this word deconstructing. So then the question is, well, should, should Christians deconstruct? Well, okay, here's, because here's what I'm hearing. Okay, well, Martin Luther deconstructed. Okay, now some of you are like, wait, because some of you have studied the Reformation, so you're like, what? I know, just pause. Do like me and try not to have that look on your face, okay? And so, because <laughs> I'm not always good at telling my face not to make statements. Um, Martin Luther deconstructed, um, David in the Psalms deconstructed because of Psalm 73, he's questioning so many things. Um, Jesus, Jesus helped in John chapter one, he helped uh, religious, oral law, religious interpretation, John chapter two, oral law, John chapter three, he helped Nicodemus deconstruct, John chapter four, he helped the woman at the well deconstruct. Okay, let me help you very, I'm just going to help you. No. None of that's actually what this culture is calling deconstruction. You see, if you're the devil and you want to erode the, the people of faith, you do it by attacking their faith, right? Peter, the enemy has desired to sift you. This is Jesus talking to Peter. And how's he going to do that? He's, he's going to work, but I have prayed that your faith fail not. What's the enemy always after? Your faith. So what does he do? He raises up something in culture that seems cool, and it starts. he starts like leaven. He starts working it into the church, and then he gets church people to start acting like it's normal. And then he gets a whole generation questioning their faith and questioning God, and we're doing it in the name of we're smarter now than we used to be. We're enlightened now. We're very intelligent now. And that's why. And there are Christian, listen to me, because what I'm saying is controversial, I know. Because there are, there are well-meaning, well-respected, famous Christian people who are telling people, oh, you should deconstruct. I want you to hear me. No, you should not. 
No, you shouldn't. Let me explain the difference. Fundamentally, there is a difference between taking my faith in God and weighing my experience versus taking my experience and weighing my faith in God. Martin Luther, they're saying he deconstructed. It's not actually true. He refined. There's a difference. Okay, there's a difference. What's the difference? Martin Luther never said, I've had bad experiences with the church, so now I'm going to question if there is a God. Martin Luther said, I know there's a God. His word is his authority. And I'm weighing the bad experience against the authority and saying, look, we got to talk about what's actually in the word because what we're doing is adverse to the authority of God's word. Fundamentally, that is very different than I've had a bad experience. So maybe God's not even real. Most, uh, most of the blogs I read, videos I listen to, Tiki Talks, all those things. That's just what I call it. I kind of this thing is funny. Um, what people are doing is they're, they're deconstructing, and typically it falls into one of these categories. They're either deconstructing because they have bad experiences. They're deconstructing because of their own desires or appetites or attractions or they're deconstructing because culture told them they should. That's the top three. I, listen, I read, I listened, I watched. It was painful for me personally because I wanted just to go meet with the people and say, could we just talk about this for a little bit? Because I think you're missing it. But it was one of those three things. And, and really, ultimately, more and more, by and large, when I, when I listen to people and their processes, read the blogs and all that, here's what I found. Oh, you're not, this is what I would say, you're not deconstructing, you're deconverting. Like the goal of this seemed to be to deconvert, not to deconstruct. When, let me explain, because some people are like, but what should we do? Okay, let me, let me help you. We all go through, we should, we should all go through a process of refining our faith. Let me explain. Um, God has to become your God. So many of us, we came to know God in a religious system. I'm not using that um, in a negative context, just an observation. In other words, I grew up in church. It's a religious system. I, don't, I hate to call it that, but I need to make a point. Are you with me? So I grew up in a religious system, and it held to certain doctrines and truths, and it had people in it, and people had opinions and people saw things a certain way, and people acted based on how they saw things, let me remind you that, um, that if you, you go back far enough in our history, in fact, you don't have to go back that far. You go back, what, 60, 70 years, something like that. We had Christians who were preaching pro-racism, Right? I mean, before the civil rights movement and, and then during the civil rights movement, Christians were fighting against the civil rights movement, which it, hopefully you're in this place where I'm at. Like, I can't even imagine being a pastor and preaching against a race of people or against the civil rights movement. I couldn't imagine doing that, but it was happening. Why? It was a religious system. The way they saw the world was what they were preaching and people grew up in that. And sometimes you adhere to things where well-meaning people, I guess, 
I hate to call them well-meaning people. People just do the best they can. I, I don't know. Don't, you understand what I'm saying? Is everybody with me? So refining our faith is a process. Like for me, when I went to Bible school, I sat and I listened to professors and I thought about church and the churches and the people I'd been around. I thought about how I had seen some things like I'd seen some racism and things, not, not overtly, but more covertly. I had seen how certain situations were handled. I, I remember how people talked about God and how God was this or God was that. And when I started studying the Bible, I started looking and saying, I'm not sure all these experiences are completely congruent with the word of God. Does this make sense? By the way, this is what Martin Luther did. Like I have my faith in God and I have the word of God and I'm gonna make an assessment. I'm gonna deconstruct experiences based on the word of God, not deconstruct God based on my experiences. Are, are you with me? And so this is how God becomes our God and we work. It's kind of like mining for gold, panning for gold. You ever gone panning for gold? I did this one time in Colorado years and years ago. And you take the little thing and you scoop all the sediment and then you shake it out, you know, and you try to get the little rocks in the sediment. And the thing is, there's little flakes of gold in there, you know, and you're trying to, to get out all the, all the sediment and stuff till you get to the gold. See, that's, that's refining our faith. That's saying God is here. His word is, his, is a, God is sovereign. His word is his authority. It will never pass away. But when I learned religion, I learned it from people. I learned it in places, right? And so I just scooped it up. But now I really want to know God. So now I got to start shaking some of the things out till I really get down to the truth of God and who he is and his word. Does this make sense? So that's refining our faith. And we all do that because we grow up where God is kind of mom and dad's God or grandma's God. And then God has to become our God. And we need to know why we believe in God, right? But that's not deconstructing in the, in the, in the postmodern philosophical way, if you will. That's just refining our faith. That's part of maturity in life and going to God and saying, okay, God, show me who you are. Okay, God, help me understand who you are. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So to me, that, that I don't have a problem with people refining their faith and, and trying to, you know, the Bible says, call unto me and I will answer you. This is what God said, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. I don't, I don't have a problem with people drawing near to God saying, God, just, I want to know, is this you or is this not you? And, and like, I, I want God, I really want to know you and I'm going to judge my experiences and my desires and my appetites based on the truth of your word. So to me, if that's what you're calling deconstructing, I, don't, I think there's a better term. I think it's more refining, right? Because culturally, when people are talking about deconstructing, the ones that I listen to, the blogs that I read, the people, what they're talking about is, is typically they've got their experience or their desire or cultures taught them and they're putting God in the scales and trying to determine if he's really God. And they're putting the Bible in the scales and trying to determine is the Bible really the Bible, right? And to me, that's, that's just really dangerous, really dangerous because for a lot of reasons, but um, I, I don't, here's the main one. It's really humanism. Because humanism starts with me, my desires, my thoughts, right? And what the Bible really teaches us, and I got to hurry, but 
The Bible tells us that when we were made, when man was made in the garden, he was spirit, soul, and body, and God created him, if you will, like a hierarchy, and the spirit was supposed to be the governor, right? That's why Jesus is a Lord. See, we, we like Jesus to be a Savior. I, I listen to a lot of people, they're okay with Jesus being a Savior. They don't want him to be a Lord. The problem is, he's, if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior, because he doesn't save people to be their own Lord, because the way he rescues you is he rescues you from you. And so we were created for our soul to be submitted to our spirit. This is called walking in the spirit. Live by the spirit and you won't gratify the lust of the flesh. I mean, there's so much in Paul's writings about how we're led of the spirit. Those who are led of the spirit are the sons of God. So the spirit's supposed to lead us, right? Problem is when Adam and Eve fell, they lost the Holy Spirit and they became self-governed by their soul, their mind, their will, and their emotions. What I can think, what I can understand, what I can perceive, how I feel, right? And the decisions and the desires that I have. And that's not how we live. That's, that's humanism, right? So the whole gospel is about surrendering the soul to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and being led by the Spirit. This is what Romans 8 says, don't walk in the flesh, but live by the Spirit because the flesh is going to lead you into death, but the Spirit is going to lead you into life and peace. The problem is, here's the problem. We want life and peace, but life and peace only comes when you have the right Lord. As long as you're the Lord, you can't have peace. You only get peace when your Lord becomes the prince of peace, right? And then he goes on to say, but the mind that's controlled by the flesh is Romans 8, by the way, the mind that's controlled by the flesh is an enemy of God. He's saying, listen, you can't intellectually arrive at God. And that's what deconstruction is like. All of a sudden I've gotten so smart and so enlightened intellectually, I'm going to judge and assess everything and somehow see where that, that leads me. It's very dangerous, can I show you this really quickly from Genesis chapter 3 if you're there? I want to show you that none of this is new. That the first time we see deconstruction, what we now call deconstruction, by the way, in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible. Let me show you this. Most of you know the story. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you can't eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said, no, we can eat of all the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said in the day that you eat of this one tree, this one fruit in the midst of the garden, don't touch it or you're going to die. Verse four, but the servant said to the woman, you're not going to die for God knows that when you eat of the tree, you, it, it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, that the tree was desired, notice all this is about her. When she saw, it looks like good food. When she saw, it would make me wise. When she thought about it, right? She took the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This to me is, is, is essentially, what, what did Satan do? When you think about this, what did Satan do? He came to Adam and Eve, came to Adam and Eve, and here's the first thing he said. He said, hey, you've had a bad experience with God because God's keeping you from something. So what he immediately said is, what's your experience with God? Well, God's keeping you something. God knows that's good fruit, but God just doesn't want you to have it. God didn't move a certain way. God didn't do what you, should have, what you thought he should do. God didn't give you what he thought he should give you. So you have had a bad experience with God because God didn't fit into your box called God. So now we need to deconstruct faith in this God because God's not measuring up to who you think God should be. Right? 
I've had a bad experience with God. I've had a bad experience with church. I've had a bad, listen, I've had a bad experience with church. I've had a bad experience with a lot of things. I don't necessarily give up. I mean, I've had burnt steak. I didn't give up on cows. <laughs> Are you with me? So I'm just saying, but look at what the enemy does. It's the first thing he says. Look, it's because why don't we deconstruct our experience, our desires, our culture? That's the top three that I found. And here's what he said. You had a bad experience with God, so let's call God into question to see if he should really be in charge of your life. That's exactly what happened here. Or how about this? My own appetites. This is food. If God was really God, God wouldn't make you hungry and then not let you eat. If this is the attraction you have, who is God to tell you not to act out on it? Do you understand the whole New Testament is full of God telling us not to do certain things because they'll kill us? Most of the Bible has those things in there and it's not because God's mean, it's because God wants us to live and God always limits what will kill us, i.e. the fruit, don't eat this fruit or you'll die. God wasn't trying to keep them from something good. He gave them a world full of good. He was trying to keep them from the one thing that would kill them. Thus, he said, don't do this. But here's what, well, I'm made this way. So, so a church that doesn't affirm or people that will call me into question or a God that all of a sudden's mad at me because this is the way I'm made should be no God at all. And yet again, here we have the creation putting the creator on the scales to decide if you're good enough to be my God. And what I'm presenting as evidence is my own emotion, my own feeling, my own attraction, my own thoughts. Do you see the danger in that? Does anybody, because it's, it's actually what, what's actually going on. So, so I got to jump to the points to finish up here, okay? So what I wanted to do is I want to talk about refining faith or constructing faith. I want to give you three things just very quickly to build your faith, all right? Three things that to me, I think are helpful. The first one may shock you, but it's this. You need to understand the foundation of the Christian faith is not the Bible, it's the resurrection. I'm in no way minimizing the Bible. Most Christians don't understand this. The way the first century church was taught, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. I mean, they obviously had the law and the prophets, right? They didn't have the New Testament. So what was Christianity built on in the first century? The first century church is built on the fact that there's an empty tomb. And, and, and that is what gave credence to the Bible. That's what gave authority to the Bible. But in, in church culture, and we should, we should elevate the word of God above every other thing, right? Really, God's word forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever, okay? But what happens, we stopped preaching the resurrection or understanding the resurrection is what gave the Bible. In other words, if the tomb isn't empty, we shouldn't be listening to what's in Scripture. Are you with me? And, and here's the other problem is, what was Satan's tactic in Genesis 3? Attack the Word of God. Well, get on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube. You're going to find somebody and they're going to point out X amount of discrepancies they found in the Bible. And they're going to point to the behavior of Christians and talk about how it's hypocrisy. And they're going to weigh it against Scripture. And sometimes they're not even wrong, quite frankly. I, mean, I, I hate to say that. 
And there are things in the Bible that do look like discrepancies, even in the Gospels comparing them. But you have to understand, you're talking about two different people that saw something. And remember, the Gospel, the Bible, um, <laughs> the, the Bible is written in the language of, of observation. Does that make sense? I just went blank on the term. It's not anthropomorphic. Phenomenological. The Bible is written in phenomenological language, which means it's just eyewitness accounting for what happened. That's why people say, well, the sun can't stand still. And the Bible says the sun can't, can't. The Bible's not a science textbook. It's written by a man that was on a battlefield. And he looked up and he said, the sun's standing still. He wasn't a scientist. Right? We understand the sun is still and the earth moves around. And we understand that from science. But this wasn't a scientific Bible. This wasn't, by the way, most of the time the Bible doesn't, well, the Bible really doesn't contradict good science. In fact, most good science actually proves the Bible. But the point is, it's written in the language of the So you get to the Gospels and people say, well, he said this and he said that. And he says Judas hanged himself this way and Judas killed himself this way. Well, you're talking about, you're talking about people with perspectives who are telling you what they saw and experienced. Right? It's phenomenological language. So, so yes, sometimes you can look at the Bible and people can point out discrepancies, but usually it's people that all they know about the Bible is something they found on TikTok and they're just trying to point out discrepancies. They don't actually haven't studied it to really understand it. Like the Bible will say, David, uh, God moved David to number Israel. And then in one place it says, and Satan moved David to number Israel. And it says that, and it's a discrepancy, but it's not really if you understand the whole Bible, and you understand Satan does what God allows him to do, and God needed to test David, and David had a pride issue. God needed to test David. He also needed to bring judgment against some people who were in sin. So essentially, God allowed Satan to tempt David, and David, when he fell, he fell back. He said, let me fall into the hands of God, and David falls back into the hands of God. So, so you, I understand you're like, well, I don't know. It's, yeah, I understand, but this is my point. There's always going to be people out there trying to shoot holes in the Bible. They've been trying to shoot holes in the Bible ever since we, you know, what, 398 when it was, well, really before Marcion was trying to rewrite the Bible before it was, can the New Testament was canonized in 398. So do you understand what I'm saying? People have been trying to shoot holes in the Bible ever since. That's why you need to know, oh, you know why I believe the Bible? Because the tomb is empty. And you say, well, we don't know that. Here's, here's what people say. We don't know the tombs empty. Actually, you can study history. So you can set the Bible over here and go to history. And you can read Lucian and Tacitus and the Jewish Talmud and Josephus. And you can read Roman historians and Jewish leaders. And here's what history tells you. History, not the Bible. History will tell you there was a man named Jesus he was executed on a Roman cross by Tiberius. We know Tiberius reigned from 14 BC to 37 BC, right? Exactly when the Bible says Jesus was executed on a cross. Jesus was really dead because Romans were really good at killing people. And if someone escaped the cross, they killed the Roman soldier. And what they did was so horrific, they mostly stayed drunk to do it. So Jesus didn't fall asleep on the, the cross and then they, you know, he woke up later in the tomb. It's not what happened, right? So history tells us there was a Christ, a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He was dead. He was put in a tomb. And because of a lot of different 
things. The tomb was sealed with a stone. History tells us that. You know what else history tells us? Three days later, no one could find the body. That's actually historical. Now, they all have reasons why we couldn't find the body. Somebody stole the body. Well, the Romans didn't want to steal the body. They wanted him dead. The Jews sure didn't want him rising from the dead. That would have proved his claim, so they wanted him dead. The only people that could have stole the body would have been the disciples. The problem is the disciples were all willing to die for a lie if they stole the body. How far would you go for a delusion? Then you can't explain the phenomenon of the followers of Jesus even to this day. There's just so much. I, I can't get in. My point is, here's my point, right? I'll read you a couple quotes. Here's my point. My point is you need to understand as a believer and a follower of Jesus, you need to understand the reason we adhere to the Bible is because of the empty tomb. The foundation of our faith is the empty tomb. And they have tried to prove for literally now a couple thousand years that the tomb wasn't empty and no one's ever found the body. But you know what history does point to? I'm going to read you a quote. History does point to the fact that the followers of Jesus saw Jesus after his crucifixion. Right? Oh, this is good. Atheistic, notice what I just said. Atheistic New Testament scholar Gerard Ludman concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. He's an atheist. Tacitus wrote this. He's a Roman historian. He was not a follower of Jesus. Therefore, to stop the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. In other words, Nero was persecuting Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked, and this pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease. Notice he calls Christianity a disease. But in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find vogue. Here's, here's what Tacitus observed. There was Jesus was crucified and, all, and, and what we would know as Christianity took off. And it made Nero mad because they were saying Jesus was alive. So he started punishing Christians and then it just spread everywhere. Are you with me? Okay, I, I know I gotta go on, but that's one of my favorite points. Okay, here's, here's the second thing, just real quick. Start with Jesus, not your experience. Jesus is the, the, the visible image of the invisible God. And when people start, when they start taking the, new te the, the Old Testament, usually it's what they do. And they take things in the Old Testament they don't understand. Some things maybe I don't even understand because there's stuff in the Old Testament. I mean, there's, you know, guys running, prophets are running around naked. One prophet's laying on his side 300 something days and on the other side 40 days. And they're like, what does all this mean? I don't know. I don't know all the time what all that means. But I'm not using things I don't understand about the Old Testament to tell me whether or not there's a God. If I want to know about God, Jesus is perfect theology. I study Jesus. 
He was God incarnate. He is the revelation of God to man. So for me, I don't start with my experience or my understanding. I start with Jesus. And Jesus tells me some things about God. He said, Jesus tells me there is a God. Jesus tells me God is love for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting. So God so loved the world. God is good. God is benevolent. God is kind. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. You find all that out, just study Jesus. Does that make sense? Study Jesus. Start with Jesus, not your experience. Here's the last thing. Understanding does this for our culture. Please hear what I'm about to say. Understanding does not lead you to faith. Faith leads you to understanding. You need to understand this. Let me give you a verse from the Bible. This is Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand. Look at those four words. By faith, we understand. It does not say we use our understanding to get to faith. And by the way, the context, he's talking about the universe and creation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So he's saying this. By faith, we understand. Listen to me. I was asked a question about atheism. Can a person be an atheist? I'm like, well, if you just want to deny God, anybody can deny God. They've been denying God since the existence of man, essentially. If you want to claim there is no God, you can claim it. You just can't prove it. But here, let me give you a scientific, and this is, I put this on Instagram. Let me give you a scientific understanding of why I don't think it's prudent to be an atheist. Because an atheist, now the claim denies the existence of God, but many atheists will go farther and they'll almost say definitively, there is no God. You can't actually say that because you're claiming as truth or fact something that is unproven and that you don't know. Are you with me? So can I just give you this? Can I break this down for just a second? Science tells us out of everything that can be known, the smartest, most intelligent humans know 1% of what can be known. So here's my question to an atheist. If you are the most intelligent person out of all of the humans, you don't know 99% of what can be known. Is it possible in the 99% of what you don't know, there could be a God? Because no good science is based on a 1% sample size. No scientific theory is proven are even accepted based on a 1% sample size. It's not, it's not prudent. It's not good science, right? And then you say, well, we back up and say, okay, well, can I be agnostic? Because an agnostic says, well, I don't know if there's a God or not. Well, here's what I would say. Is that smart? Is that prudent? Because here's what you're saying. There could be a God. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I don't know. Okay, well, I think that's fair to say you don't know. I, I don't have a problem with that. I'm saying, should you stay there? Because if I can know, I want to know. Before I get to eternity, because if I'm wrong on this, right? If there really is a God, then all this eternity and everything we've been talking about, that kind of comes into play, right? And I don't want to get to eternity and find out, holy cow, there's a God, and I'm on the wrong side of the judgment day. I want to find out then. I want to find out now. Well, here's the promise of Scripture. Everyone who seeks God finds him. So if I'm agnostic, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying, okay, God, show yourself to me. Okay, God, not, in a, not in an arrogant, prideful way. Not, God, you're in the scales. But, God, you know what? If you're real, I want to find you. If you're real, I want to know you. 
If you're real, I, I want to hear you. Like, God, here is my humble heart, for you will seek for me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God, if you're real, I want to know and I need to know, so I'm going to set my heart to seek you and see if you'll show up. Not out of, not demanding, not arrogance, not pride, not in judgment, but just saying, God, my heart and mind are open to say, I don't know, but I want to know. To me, that makes sense. Are you with me? And so we have to understand by faith, we understand by faith. The problem with our culture that I see is we value our opinions too much. In fact, we so much value our opinions that if your opinion is different from my opinion, then you hate. That's hate right there because you don't like my opinion. But I can like my opinion and not like your opinion, and that's not hate. But if you don't like my opinion and I like my opinion, that's hate speech if you say something about it. Another thing about our culture is we value our own thoughts too much. And that's ultimately intellectualism that's not going to bring you to faith, right? Because what you're saying is, well, I'll start, this is what our culture says, if there's a God, if I start with my mind, I'll get there. He's bigger than your mind. I told a friend of mine who was an atheist, and this is what he said, I don't understand God. I said, if you could understand him, he wouldn't be God. You would be. I don't want a God I can understand because I think I'm, supposed, I think I'm finite. I want an infinite God. I want one that, as Isaiah says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher. I don't want to spend my life worshiping a peer that I can understand. I want to spend my life worshiping a God who is greater than my existence and greater than my understanding, who created everything and knows everything, and I'm going to accept that I didn't create anything and I don't know everything. Are you with me? So, if you're in the process of constructing and refining your faith, awesome. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. If you're in the process of putting God in the scales because of what you saw online, TV, YouTube, TikTok, or whatever, or because of your experience or because of your own set of desires or attractions or emotions, you need to be very cautious with that because it's probably just the work of the enemy undermining your faith. Are you with me? I'm so sorry, but I love you enough that I'm going to run the risk of upsetting people today. How about that? Why don't you stand with me? Amen. And if you'll come back next week, is be something better. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. And we like to end all of our worship experiences with a time of prayer for anyone who needs prayer for anything. And let's just bow our heads together. God, I thank you for your word that speaks truth. God, maybe we don't always like what it speaks, but it always speaks truth. That's true. There have been times I didn't like what it said, but I knew it was truth. God, we just want to hear you. That's the point. With everyone 
just pausing for a moment, our heads bowed, no one moving around. Will you just take a moment and ask God what he's speaking to you today? Just where you're at, God, what are you saying to me? Just what are you saying to me? And God, I pray you'd speak to every person, online, in the room, every person. Every person. And what I want to pray for today with our heads bowed and I was looking around, I want to pray for people. Maybe you're struggling with faith and you're struggling with doubt. And you just want prayer for that. Just prayer for that. No one's going to throw stones. I've started off. I've had my questions. I've had my doubts. But I do want to pray for you. I've been praying for you all week. I want to pray for you today. And so no one's looking around. wouldn't embarrass you. But if that's you and you just want prayer like... Pastor, I've got some doubts. I've got questions. I've been dealing with this. Would you just lift your hand and say, God, I just want God to speak to me, to reveal himself to me. Yeah, awesome. God bless you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, God bless you. Awesome. God, I pray for my friends in this room and maybe even watching online, God, who have questions, who have doubts. Lord, first of all, let them feel no condemnation. Because, God, I don't think there's anything wrong with bringing our questions to you. Bringing our doubts to you. Bringing our fears to you. And so, God, I just pray for them in, 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 in just the courage that it takes even to lift their hand. God, I just pray that you would speak to them. You may or may not answer all their questions, but, God, you can show them who you are. You can speak to them. God, that's what I pray, that you would reveal yourself to them, to all of us. God, I pray for all of us. God, help us, God, to be strong in our faith, to see the work of the enemy, how he is so seductive and so stealthy. God, we want our faith to be grounded in you. God, the word of God can't fail. Jesus, you are the rock we can build our lives on. That's what we want to do. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Come on, can you give Jesus one more praise today? Listen, I love you so much. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. Everyone else, we say a big God bless you. We love you. We'll see you next weekend.